The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. Become a member and support this podcast. Go to numismatics.org slash membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. Welcome to the Planchet Podcast from the American Numismatic Society. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt, and today's guest is Walid Ziad. Walid is Assistant Professor and Ali Jarahi Fellow in Persian Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Formerly a Research Fellow at the Abdallah S. Camel Center for the Study of Islamic Law and Civilization at Yale Law School, Ziad has conducted fieldwork in over 120 towns across Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, and Pakistan. His books include Hidden Caliphate, Sufi Saints Beyond the Oxus and Indus, which is uh, published by Harvard University Press, and the forthcoming Beyond Kutba and Sika, Sovereignty and Coinage in Sindh, 1300-1700. He received his BA, MA, MPhil, and PhD from Yale University, where his dissertation was awarded the university-wide Theron Rockwell Field Prize, one of two, one of the two most prestigious Yale dissertation awards across disciplines. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Waleed's latest book, In the Treasure Room of the Soccer King, Vote of Coinage from Gandharan Shrines, which has just been published by the American Numismatic Society. So welcome, Waleed. Andrew, thank you so much for that uh, generous introduction. And of course, thank you so much for uh, working with me for the last couple of years. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. And and, and likewise, um, I appreciate you taking the time today. So um, let's, let's get right into it. And I wanted to start with some definitions for the listeners who aren't necessarily familiar um, you know, with the topic of the book. And I'm wondering, first, where is Gandhara? And second, um, what or who was the Sacra King? Uh, sure. Okay, the first one I will answer. The second one I will problematize. Um, <laughs> so Gandhara is a, um, it's a kind of, a, um, it's got shifting definitions of what this region actually is. But think about a region that stretches from around uh, uh, Jalalabad in eastern Afghanistan. So this is not too far from the Pakistan border, covering a whole chunk of northern Pakistan. So um at various stages, it's been um, kind of the, the, the contours of Gandhara have been sort of greater or lesser, but uh, by and large, uh, it's this in- incredibly important area which um, uh, witnessed a confluence of different cultures. Uh, it's one of the places where Buddhism really gestates. Um, and then one of the sort of core regions where greater Central Asian kingdoms, religious practices sort of meet those of the the Indus uh, and North India. The Sakra King is actually, um, it's a a recent uh, mythology, probably of the last couple of hundred years. There is a cave temple in Gandhara in the northern mountainous regions of Gandhara. And this is the cave temple, which is really at the center of uh, the book. Now, this cave temple, as we'll probably talk about soon, ended up um, producing a lot of artifacts, gold and silver coins, all sorts of um, uh, votive artifacts, statues, uh, copper coins that are the subject of this study, to the effect that it became known as a treasure house by the local people. In fact, today there is a mythology that there was a cruel king known as the Sakra king. The peak is called the Sikri or Sakra, alternatively, 
the region is, uh, that's the, the name of this particular peak and the region surrounding it. Um, so there's a mythology that there was this cruel king called the Sakura king who defeated all the neighboring kingdoms and then brought all of the wealth into this great cave temple. So the title is alluding to that. So with uh, you know, with the the cave temple, this has become part of the local mythology. Um, how did you first hear about it? So it's actually a it's a really old story, and um, I should really point out that I think uh, twenty twenty five years. I think it's been in the making. In nineteen ninety nine, a um, dear friend of mine who was a antiquarian and a local historian, I was traveling with him in Kashmir. And he had mentioned that he'd come across something really quite unique. It was a lot of um, these coins that he couldn't make sense of. And they were, there were some of them which actually contained some Hanik iconography, some Hephthalite iconography, and he knew that I was interested in that. So then he showed them to me. And I remember just being absolutely astonished. There were about 500 coins that, that were at his disposal, and there were these tiny copper coins, about less than a gram each, some of them like extremely small, and they featured a whole range of iconography that I had never seen before. So I'll give you an example of, of the first one that I actually saw that piqued my interest. And it's actually now on the back cover of the book. And it's this tiny round coin that on one side features what looks like a duck. And the duck carries some beads in its beak. Um, above the duck is a little royal mark. It's called a tamra, and it's a royal mark of the Al Khan Hans. It's one of the important Hanik dynasties that controlled much of um, South and Central Asia. On the back is a legend in Brahmi, so it's about 5th century, and the Brahmi legend says, uh, roughly translates to victorious law. Now, this was absolutely remarkable because what I was seeing here is that the, this bird with the beads in its beak is a very important Iranian symbol of investiture. It is when a king, often from a flying creature, a mythical flying creature, receives something which basically means that the king actually now has, has God-given charisma, the ability to rule. Now, of course, instead of some wild mythical animal, here we're seeing just a duck. So that's standard Iranian mythology, um, really coming from the Avestan tradition. And then you've got a Turkic Hanik symbol on top of this, and uh, which actually um, probably reflects the belief systems that the Huns are bringing, bringing in. And on the other side, you've got a rather interesting uh, Indic legend. So in other words, it's, it seems to be the confluence of three worlds that we look at quite separately. So this was one of them. And then in addition, there was just a range of religious iconography, um, 20 different types of fire altars. There was Greek iconography, but completely displaced from the, the period that produced it. So there were, for example, imitations of uh, copper imitations of silver coins of Menander that were found in here, but issued 600 years after the fact. So Menander is about 150, 160 BC, and these are fourth century, uh, at least. Um, so you've got Greek symbols, and this features Athena on, on the reverse. You've got a sequence of Shaiva and Vaishnava symbols, the uh, conch shell, the trident, the trishul, uh, the vajra, etc., and a whole sequence of what we often call Middle Iranian. These are animals that carry, as I said, divine charisma. It's called khwarna or, or far, far izadi in, um, in old Middle Persian. And then a lot of images of 
kind of ambiguous goddesses. There was incredible hybridity. There was a, um, a coin of uh, featuring what was definitely a, a uh, facing bust of Justinian, but he's now holding Shiva's trident. Wow. You've got images that shouldn't be there. Hindu Shahi images from the 9th century. On the reverse, you find legends, Allah or Muhammad, messenger of God. There are five scripts that were represented here. Uh, so Pahlavi, Middle Persian, Brahmi, Sharada, which appears in the 8th and 9th century. You had Bactrian uh, and uh, what am I missing? Kufic Arabic. And we were able to actually eventually trace these to this uh, temple, this great temple in northern Gandhara. It's north of the city of Mardan in northern Pakistan, today northwestern Pakistan. And specifically to a sequence of sites around this temple that was known as the Kashmir Shmast. Now, it's called Kashmir Shmast. It has nothing to do with Kashmir. Uh, the word Kashmir is possibly because it was believed that the inner recesses of the cave temple led all the way to Kashmir, or possibly the, the verdant environment was reminiscent of Kashmir, and Shmast means cave in Pashto. And then that's really where my story begins, where I then spend the next decade just meeting as many people as possible who were from that region, who had access to the coins to actually document them before they were dispersed, to try to understand them as best as possible in the native habitat, and also to record junk, to record the the copper coins that were not fit for for the market, which is really was key in actually determining what were the local coins that were being issued around this particular cave temple complex, and then really what were the approximate uh, locales where these coins were being found. Boy, there's a lot of st stuff that we can go down. Um, so before we start talking about you know maybe the the user and the intent of the coins, I'm, I'm wondering. Um, uh, You've, you've been to the cave, you've been in the cave, and I'm wondering if you could describe what it was like to, to, to go in. What did you see? Did the cave actually go to Kashmir? Probably not, but um, you know, tell us a little bit about, about you know, the, uh, the space and then you know, where the coins might have fit in within that space, and then we can talk a little bit about commerce and, and uh, intent. Absolutely. Uh, well, I didn't quite make it as far as Kashmir, uh, so perhaps <laughs> there, there was some, uh, some part of the, of the cave temple complex that I missed. Uh, my first trip there was actually, um, I mean, it's, it's so incredibly memorable. Uh, this is sort of in the mid, uh, 2000s. It's a time when this area was still a little bit insecure. And we, I think, left from Islamabad, went to a town sort of at the foothills of these mountains uh, near Mardan called Rustam, which is named after this great hero from the Persian Book of Kings. From Rustam, we went to a smaller village called Pirsai, and then after that, we were on foot. It's a three and a half hour journey, uh, which uh, takes you, so you ford a river, and then you... Um, um, for, for, for those listeners, uh, <laughs> uh, Waleed is broadcasting uh, from, from someplace in New Haven, Connecticut, so it's a little bit of local color there, folks. <laughs> In case you're wondering what's happening in the background, um, <laughs> I'm not being followed. Uh, <laughs> so um, you you ford a river and then you sort of work your way up into these um, uh, into the mountains and then at a certain stage you um, 
step onto an ancient path. And there are uh, caves that are carved into the side, which are meditation cells kind of on the way up. And this particular path winds on the side of a mountain and then splits into three. So one actually takes you to a sequence of ruins on top of a cliff. One takes you down into a valley which boasts a well which purportedly has healing qualities. In fact, people, I think, today claim that it cures tuberculosis. So they'll make the trek all the way down there uh, in order to, to seek a cure, which, of course, may be one of the reasons why this site was important to begin with. We can't discount the importance of, um, of water and, and healing sources in the creation of sacred space. The third, actually, path winds across the side of this mountain um, and then hits an ancient stone staircase that goes kind of upwards on the side of a cliff. When you get to the end of the staircase, there's the mouth of the Great Cave, which is about 20 meters high, and it's pitch darkness inside. And when I went there the first time, in fact, the people I was with insisted that this place was was damned, and uh, there were evil spirits inside, so we had to offer a protective prayer, naturally, and then work our way inside. The first chamber is about 60 meters long. Um, at one stage, it actually featured a water tank. Uh, this is where a lot of the rituals were um, centralized. And um, at the end, there are ruins of a staircase that takes you to a second chamber, which is now absolutely pitch darkness. And it's, uh, in fact, covered with bat guano. There are thousands of bats actually in, uh, inhabiting the second chamber. Beyond the second chamber, there is a staircase that leads to the right. And it leads into the third chamber, which is really quite remarkable because there are two shrines. There are two sort of square shrines with typical Gandharan diaper masonry. And 30 meters above is a hole in the roof, which lets light onto those two shrines. And if you turn, this is to the right from the second chamber. If you turn left, you go downwards into a sequence of these smaller caves, which presumably also serve some ritual purposes. And... Uh, those smaller caves are the ones that are believed to have reached all the way to Kashmir. The, um, uh, the story of the cave, it's interesting. The cave has been known for about 150 years. And there were several visitors to the cave uh, in the 1850s, 1860s. The Archaeological Survey of India also did report that the cave is there. In fact, we've got a couple of narrative accounts of uh, travelers who went in. But there were some issues. It was on the peripheries of the uh, of the British Empire. And there were some security issues that, that were faced at the time. So a couple of, in fact, three uh, very famous carved wooden uh, panels were removed from the cave and then in fact they're on they're exhibited right now in the British Museum one featuring a rishi it's it's really quite evocative and then beyond that for about a hundred years uh, the cave was sort of forgotten the locals would make forays into the cave and just find remarkable amounts of gold and silver coins uh, there was a survey that was done, a Japanese survey in the 1950s that was comparing this, this cave temple to, in fact, the Hebak. It's another very well-known uh, cave temple complex in um, the province of Semangon in Afghanistan. Uh, 
so all of these gold and silver coins and artifacts are being brought out, but the irony is that what's left behind is, is thousands and thousands of these almost meaningless looking copper coins, which are actually local products that are circulating within a five to 10 kilometer radius of this, this, uh, um, this cave temple and are situated at various shrine sites. There are at least seven shrine sites around this cave temple. And these are local products that are indicative of a certainly monetary autonomy of the region for about 800 years, from about 300 to 1100. And these particular uh, and probably political autonomy that goes along with that, ecclesiastical and political autonomy. And these remarkably increase our repertoire of known coins from this period by about four or five fold. Uh, that was my stunned silence there. <laughs> um, no, I mean this is this is truly remarkable because I don't know. You know, I'm thinking you know with with uh, you know cave contact sites and especially you know caves that are used as shrines, which um, one would kind of draw to the conclusion that the shrines are drawing pilgrims to the region, um, that they might have been bringing their own coins, you know, to leave as a kind of sacrifice uh, or you know to to honor you know, whatever gods might be within, but, but you're, you're saying that the, the, the coins and, you know, are they truly coins or are they tokens are, are they're, they're created as part of a local industry. Is that right? Yeah. So th this is um, one of the chief theoretical interventions of this. Mm. It is, it is a pilgrimage site. This we're not talking about a, an urban space per se. In fact, um, uh, maybe sort of prior to this, I should mention that we do have a sense of what this this actual site was. It is um, there's a monk, uh, Xuanzang, a very famous monk who actually visits Central and South Asia in the seventh century in the, the quest for books and to make various to uh, make a pilgrimage round. And he visits this site, uh, which is if you are in fact situated if you're going from Kabul to um, Taxila, which is this ancient Buddhist um, metropolis and university town not far from Islamabad today. So imagine Kabul to Islamabad, and you take a road leading northwards towards this mountain kingdom of Swat. It used to be called Udiana, and it has a particular spiritual significance in Buddhism. So if you take that northward route into the mountains, you're not far from that cave temple. And Xuanzang actually mentions that the core of the cave, uh, cave temple. It's the, I mean, it's built around a figure, a goddess called Bhima, who is the wife of Shiva. And he says that there is an idol made of blue stone, which is believed to be self-wrought. And that's kind of the miracle of this cave. And that's what people are there to see. There's a one, in fact, uh, votive plaque that mentions Bhima Stana as the name of the actual shrine itself. And Xuanzang the monk says that after seven days of fasting and meditation, you'll actually be able to receive a vision of Bhima. So there's the Bhima shrine, and then there's a sequence of other shrines around that are probably dedicated to different uh, deities, possibly within the, the Mahalakshmi mother goddess, uh, sorry, the, the, um, the uh, Shakta tradition, the goddess tradition. Uh, and uh, possibly other traditions that are coalescing in about the fourth century. So what we are seeing here is the development of a votive currency that is meant to be used at sacred spaces. So to go back, in fact, to the question that you asked, 
what I, I say in the introduction of my book is that you know, coins are known to serve certain particular functions. And there are three functions, I think, above all that are generally accepted. We have economic acceptance. We have coinage as political proclamations or proclamations of sovereignty. And then we've got coins representing a civic identity. So for economic acceptance, we need a some form of continuity, some form of seriality. So we know that all bills issued in the United States are of a certain size and they are grayish in color. That is the understanding that that is the representation of currency. There is a certain kind of continuity over time. In terms of uh, political proclamations, generally what you have is a sequence of symbols that or legends that refer to a ruling authority. And then those are sometimes associated with religious iconography in order to create that um, link between a certain cult or a certain belief system and, of course, a ruling household. And then in the case, for example, of um, in Roman coinage, uh, we see this in Roman civic coinage, you have certain coins that are representing a civic identity. And these are coins that are probably meant to circulate within a, um, a very uh, close space. Now, in the case that we're seeing here in the, in the Sakura case, there are about 300 different coins that are issued in this sort of seven, 800 year period. And they don't fit really any of these three categories. Some of them fit bits and pieces of these categories, while some of them simply don't. So in certain cases, you have these tiny one gram copper coins that are little versions of larger two to four gram coins that are circulating, let's say across Afghanistan, Northern Pakistan, Central Asia. In certain cases, you've got coins featuring royal insignia, but um, uh, they may or may not, uh, you know, they they uh, may or may not bear any resemblance to coins that we know. In other cases, we've got religious iconography, but with no political connotations whatsoever. For example, we have this one series of coins that are coming out of there, which are uniface, and they're absolutely minuscule, generally they're rectangular or, squ or square in shape. One features a monkey holding a ball. One features a male and female couple, the, the busts facing each other. Another features a scorpion. Another features a bull's head, and so on and so forth. In terms of economic acceptance, they have all different shapes and sizes. There is not a uniform fabric in which these coins are being issued, and of course, constantly changing patterns. So, this, you know, we there is no understanding that there's a certain sequence of patterns that necessarily, or five or six patterns that denote coinage. So what I'm positing here is that these were primarily votive currency. To quote Rebecca Darley, who has done work on Roman gold imitations from South India, objects defined for use less by economic imperative than by the mental and physical geography of ritual. And certainly, and we can talk about this if you're interested, we have clues, both regional clues from South Asia, as well as clues from different parts of the classical world, that can give us a sense, really, of how these were used on a day-to-day -day basis. We'll be right back after a word from the ANS. The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. The best way to support this podcast is join as a member. Since 1858, we have cultivated a community of scholars, artists, collectors, and amateur enthusiasts interested in numismatics and the tangible history these objects describe. Go to numismatics.org membership 
That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. Before we continue, um, re- correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember something about fire coins or is there are there representations of a fire or flame on these things? Uh, yeah, there are. There's a, a sequence of them who actually have a representation of a um, deity called Adur, which is a representation of the holy flame in ah. the Zoroastrian tradition. And you see that kind of, it's it's quite unusual. It's something that shows up in Sasanian coins. Uh, it's something, of course, that's generally not associated with Buddhism and sort of Hinduism as it's developing in this particular region. But of course, this forces us to rethink the boundaries between, again, certainly iconographic zones, but also religious practice, that probably what we're seeing here is something that doesn't quite fit the bill of practices and iconography as we know them, belonging to discrete units. And whether, let's say, the Turkic world or the Zoroastrian Persian world or the Indic Hindu or Buddhist world, these are all constructions that, of course, are based on where our study of these regions and the religions that inhabit them come from. When it comes to Gandhara, it's, I use the word transculturation a lot, that, you know, why are you seeing a Zoroastrian holy flame side by side with very, very distinct Hindu iconography? It's because we don't look at Gandhara on its own terms, that we are assuming that these are, that they're separate cultural zones producing their own images, producing their own rituals, as opposed to sort of each zone really being a zone of exchange, and each zone can then be studied really on its own terms. So with 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 all of the coins you know, coming from you know these the, these different regions uh, featuring you know, different faiths and beliefs, um, all of these are contributing to uh, what appeared to me to be kind of a, a new theoretical approach to to understanding you know what exactly is going on, and and I was hoping that you'd be able to talk a little bit about you know the the, the theories that you were you know, putting forward in the book you know based on the evidence that you'd found you know in, in the area. Absolutely. So there are three elements to this, I think, that are worth uh, uh, talking about. And these are I've outlined in my introduction as well. So one part of this is actually understanding the relationship of lesser and greater mints. Um, this is this larger question of what it means to have coins that are derivatives or imitations or unofficial coins. We have this kind of one-size-fits-all category of unofficial currency that's a deeply problematic term. Now, in this case, we've got copper coins, and copper coins, as as I'm sure you well know, are in a slightly different category generally than gold and silver, generally end up being less regulated by the state center. That does not mean that they are necessarily just sort of imitations or sort of secondary in importance. That means they have a life of their own. Now, looking at the iconographic similarities and differences of the coins that are being minted from these what I would say temple mints, um, and the coins that are circulating within the, what I call the regular, in quote, coinage or the official currency, uh, again, a problematic term. If you, if you compare these two, you can get a sense of shifting relationships between central mints or central authorities and these regional mints, which, of course, are governed by, in this case, probably ecclesiastical authorities. So, for example, I'll give you a sense of the hierarchical relationship. So when the Al-Khan Huns, it's a branch of the Huns that take over Central and South Asia, when they enter into Gandhara, I mean, they occupy Gandhara at a certain stage in the, uh, in the 5th century, you start seeing a tamra or royal symbol of the Huns showing up on the coins of the 
that are minted in these temple complexes. In certain cases, this is in the Hindu Shahi period now, I'm skipping up to the 9th and 10th century, you see really, really faithful imitations of Hindu Shahi coins that feature a bull and a horseman and a very particular legend, uh, which now are showing up in the cave temple. So in other words, it seems that there has been either some sort of a exchange where mint masters from the greater mints are now being sent up here when there's a coinage reorganization, a monetary reorganization that's been happening in the empire, maybe the central authorities will send some guy up there and say, can you please train these guys and make sure that our representations are on there. But then you notice that you've got some faithful representations and then they start going astray. They start bringing in things that are just unexpected, um, symbols sometimes from 500 years earlier. In the same Hindu Shahi period, there are Kidarite symbols from the fourth century that are being randomly introduced probably because there were some Kedarite coins sitting there and the jeweler and the mint master liked the image, thought it was appropriate to represent whatever he, he may be representing, and then included that within, that, um, uh, within the um, overall uh, coin. So you see this sort of relationship where some are faithful representations and then over time they seem to differ from what's happening in, in the central mints and then it's very clear that there are multiple mints that are operating. Uh, extremely clear that there are different workshops and different styles that are coming out just of this particular complex that may represent mints associated with different shrines. So this is the, the first part, to recognize that there are hierarchical and shifting relationships of center and periphery. The second is that when we are talking about religious iconography and we're trying to opine on the religious proclivities of a particular region based on coinage, it's not an easy task. So again, if you look at a dollar bill and you're a historian and you see that little pyramid on the dollar bill, you're not going to turn around and say that these people were worshipping pyramids. <laughs> Obviously, there's a context for everything that's produced. Yeah. So in this case, there are three different categories that of religious iconography that I delineate. The first is deliberate devotional. A specific motif is showing up at a specific time, it certainly means something. It's not just a random motif. A, a conch shows up next to a portrait. A pegasus shows up. A pegasus is not a common circulating image in the coinage of this particular period. The word Allah shows up with, on the reverse, a lunar symbol that is normally seen in Hindu Shahi coinage. Someone has deliberately written Allah there who is versed in Arabic. So that's the deliberate devotional. There is a meaning. Someone made a choice to put that there. Then we've got formulaic. And formulaic includes, for example, the fire altar. The fire altar after the Sasanian period becomes the marker of currency in much of the Indus Valley and Central Asia. If you're going to have a coin, it's good to have a fire altar in the back because that's what the Sasanians had. Sasanian coinage was well-known. It was beautiful. It was acceptable. It had a fire altar. We may not even know what the fire altar is, but we sure as heck are going to put the fire altar back there. So in other words, it's something that doesn't necessarily indicate that you are an adherent of Zoroastrianism, where, of course, the fire altar stems from. So that's formulaic. It's a marker of currency. And then you've got... Um, the um, much like the Masonic pyramid now, uh, where it no longer reveals something about religious proclivities or even the role of the Freemasons, but may have something to do with something that happened 150 years ago. 
And then we've got the third category is artistic. And this is why would someone take, for example, a, an image showing up in a gold plaque in the third century and refurbish it in a coin in the eighth century? Probably because it was pretty. Probably because that mint master is sitting there. It's a small workshop and someone finds this thing below the ground. This is an extremely historical space. And then he likes the image and he tries to make a new image in reformulating that. And perhaps that image, like an image of Justinian, may work well for a new image of Shiva because it's a beautiful image and because obviously Shiva deserves that beauty. So in a nutshell, to put each of those different type forms of iconography in their place before making any interpretations. Now, the third uh, point which I bring to the table is problematizing the categories of derivatives and imitations. And here I posit four categories that these coins fit in. There are some clear imitations. So in the uh, 8th century, you've got some coins that are coming out of Kabul, that are coming out of northern Pakistan, and tiny versions of those are now being made in the cave temple. Then you've got localized imitations. And in localized imitations, for example, you'll have Hindu Shahi coins from the 9th century, which have a bull on one side, a horseman on the other. Same legend is showing up as on the regular coins, is showing up on the cave temple coins, but a new little mark shows up a new mint mark, perhaps, a new location mark, and that, of course, we opine on. And then the third category is referential. So you've got coins that are don't really resemble the regular currency that's floating around, but may make reference in the form of legends, in the form of some religious symbol that is occurring on the regular coins, some civic mark, some royal mark that appears there. And then you've got a category of non-referential coins, coins that have absolutely nothing to do with other coins that are circulating. They may be artistic, you know, completely from scratch, artistic images that the, that the mint master has come up with. Most often they are deriving from seals. They are deriving from uh, the other, um, in fact, uh, votive objects. For example, these gold bracteate plaques that we find all across Central Asia that are used for various devotional purposes. Um, they may be coming from... Um, statuary. They may be coming from public art. And in these cases, uh, the mint master will actually take something that they, that's within their repertoire and then reproduce it um, on this coin. So what I uh, stress is that it is a, before attributing any coin to a particular period, to a particular range of dates, to a particular polity, it is important to lay out the various categories and then make the choices and begin the analysis based on our understanding of where, where iconography is deriving from and why it may be deriving from these various sources. Take a breath. <laughs> that was, no, it's, this is, this is, this is uh, completely fascinating to me. You know, this is, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be new for so many people, you know, to, to hear this, which is just absolutely wonderful. And the fact that, you know, you've, you've, you've come across, you know, this assemblage from this location that has this rich of a history that really sheds light on, you know, how, how, uh, you know, the, the people with, you know, within this particular area were interacting and, and it's, no, it's, it's just, it's just astonishing the work that's gone into this. Um, and this actually makes me want to rewind 
a little bit because, and one of the things I've been asking on the podcast of all of our guests is going back to kind of their origin story, if you will, um, for, <laughs> if, if you, if you, yeah, I mean, really is like, you're, you're like a Marvel superhero here. Um, <laughs> so of a, a Marvel superhero of numismatics. Absolutely. But, 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 uh, you know, where, what was your first contact with, with coinage or, or perhaps specifically with ancient coinage and what really kind of drew you um, into studying, um, you know, what you study? Sure. Um, it, it's a very long story. <laughs> uh, and the story is really, it takes me back to, uh, let's say, a defining moment is when I was uh, nine years old. And I, in fact, was very interested in ancient history and ancient history of um, Southern and Central Asia. And I met uh, Amanur Rahman, the well-known collector whose uh, really sort of legendary collection is now being uh, published in bits and pieces by different scholars around the world, uh, whose actually, collection of, of coins from this um, site were also uh, published a few years ago uh, from, from Austria, from Vienna. So I had met him and I would expressed my interest in ancient coins. And I remember having a, a sitting with him in which he kind of brought me through kind of a history of this, this vast zone of exchange of Southern and Central Asia. And at that stage, I actually really became obsessed with the coins of the, in fact, the history of the intermediate period, the period that people don't touch, the period that hasn't made it into the history books. And that is really the period after, let's say, the Kushan period that's, uh, you know, um, that's coeval with the Roman period. And then from there on to the arrival of Islam, let's say in the 11th century in the Central Asian and North, uh, when the North Indian context, or, or uh, certainly the context of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And these were, there was a sequence of, of dynasties that I became very interested in that were kind of pushed aside, they were left aside, they were often put in this category, this very problematic category of heftalite or Hunnic coinage, and very few st systematic studies had been done. And as I, I think by the time I was, um, was about uh, 16, I'd already visited Uzbekistan, spent some time there, um, and um, in fact, ended up uh, in high school in Pakistan at the time and would skip out on school and actually travel with these um, traveling local historians, treasure hunters, with rather interesting cast of characters. And we would go by local bus to various uh, historical sites and really sort of experience firsthand the history. And I got a very intimate sense of where these coins were coming from, the context they were coming from. And um, it gave me a newfound appreciation also for connectivity. The fact that Central and South Asia are not, or Iran are not these distinct entities, but you see images, you see coins, you see emperors reappearing in in these um, uh, uh, in the various artifacts that come out of these areas. So um, I think by the time I was sixteen, I became much more interested. And then as I got older, I uh, generally my historical work tended towards the areas and times of where there was no discernible central authority where sources are generally limited. And I took this upon myself as a challenge. And I think this is what really got me caught in this particular bind of a project. This, this is, this is amazing. I'm, I'm still, I'm still flashing back to, to an image of you sitting in a classroom in Pakistan. And then there's a knock at the window outside and it, it's one of the guys in the van. And he's like, well, come on, we got to go. 
<laughs> yeah, seeing you kind of escape and get into the van, and then you go and you 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 tour a historic site and you check out the coins and everything, and it's just God, that's marvelous. I, I wish you, I wish it was different <laughs> from that. I do recall at one stage the principal calling me in and saying, "Walid, where were you for five days?" And then I explained it to him, and then he said, "Actually, that's really interesting, but you know, you should let us know before you do that." Oh my God, that's fascinating. You know, most of my friends, they, they were like going to the beach um, or, you know, going to see a, a baseball game or something. And then, and then, you know, here you are, you know, just doing this remarkable historical stuff. And seriously, this, the more I, I learn about you, the more I talk to you, the more legendary you're kind of becoming. <laughs> it's just, no, this is, this is. You're too kind. <laughs> Man, uh, if, if, yeah, I wish I could have been on fly on the wall for some of that stuff. Um, so, Okay. You know, we've we've done we've talked about the early days. We've talked about the contents of the book and the theoretical underpinnings and the evidence and everything. So, so what's next? Uh, you, you don't seem to be one to just kind of sit still. So, there's always something going on with you. So, so what are you up to now? Uh, no, unfortunately, sitting still is a is a, is a problem. I have a, have a <laughs> rough time with that, as many of my colleagues in the field have a rough time with it. Um, I've got a few projects in the making. You know, I'm. I'm really interested in, um, okay, well, I should start out with this, that there, there are certain problems with the way in which uh, we collect and in the way in which collections are made and then in which uh, research is done in our respective field. And very often, especially in, when we're talking about you know, zones like South and Central Asia, the issue of provenance gets left behind. And it's deeply, deeply problematic because, um, so provenance gets left behind. And then the other thing is that coins that aren't pretty enough to make it to the the big auction houses are often then brushed aside. So uh, I am interested in this issue of, um, of, in fact, local coinage, of copper coinage, of uh, the types of issues that may not have circulated very far beyond their um, the, the regions that they're actually produced from. These days, I have an enormous interest in the coinage of Sindh. And this is something that I've been working on right now, really from about the 5th century to the um, 17th century, the copper coins remain virtually untouched. Sorry, uh, j- just to clarify for, for the listeners who might have missed that, this the coins of Sindh, that's, it's S-I-N-D-H, and not the coinage of Sin, S-I-N, it's, it's the place, <laughs> not the thing. So just, just so we're clear. <laughs> Yeah, I really appreciate that. I should just recognize that that that, that it is a place that that uh, is not that familiar to most of us. Um, this is the Lower Indus Valley. So this is the um, this falls really in the southern half of a uh, southern part of Pakistan, and uh, there is a, actually a trilingual joke when the the first British uh, officer took over Sindh Napier. There was a kind of joke that was printed, I think, in the Times of London that when he took Sindh, he wrote uh, Pekavi, in other words, in Latin, I have sinned, oh my and therefore God. meaning I have sinned. It's actually a terrible joke, but it's not mine. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you need to put that on the excavation t-shirt. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I, have, I have one last question that I just that I just thought of, and uh, feel free to answer, or if, if you care not to, that's, that's totally fine. Um, but you know you're you're going out in the field, and and I know that you've been on sabbatical, and you've been doing a lot of field work, you know, out in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then you know you've also done your archaeology in Uzbekistan, and, and I'm I'm curious as to you know, do you feel safe, or how do you keep safe uh, when you're doing your field work? Um, it's uh, it's a lot safer and easier than one would actually imagine. 
Um, I mean, I've not been to Afghanistan in the last few years, and uh, um, it's really a matter of uh, being very upfront with what one does. There is a tremendous amount of interest in local histories, in local artifacts, uh, believe it or not, in local coinage in each of the regions that I work. And uh, a part of it is actually just, you know, sitting down, chatting, discussing history. Uh, most of these finds in this region are not being done in archaeological context, right? Because this is an extremely historical zone. And a farmer is there, you know, tilling his or her soil and then hits something and then that something comes and then gets distributed somewhere or often gets um, it often gets thrown away if it's just seen as a copper junk. So part of it is developing relationships with people and then for people to feel comfortable enough to then share things with you so that you can document them to be very clear that listen this is a uh, this is not uh, this is something that's being done for uh, for a a larger purpose. This is; these are extremely important historical artifacts. It's important that if you find something and you find it as a, you know, as a, a, a hoard, please do let me examine that hoard or send me pictures before whatever happens to it happens to it. So a lot of it is developing trust, and um, you'd be surprised that once you are in these communities and once people, you know, are well aware of what you are doing and what your intentions are, then doors open. And then people look out for you, and it really is far easier than one would possibly imagine. Yeah, um, no, that's 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 a great answer. It's you're you're doing a public service. It's a public archaeology, a public history, and by involving the community in what it is that you're doing, they feel invested in it, and they're learning from it as well. So yeah, it's, it seems like an absolute natural uh, way to 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 do this kind of science. Um, Walid, I wanted to thank you for your time today. This has been an extraordinary and fun conversation, and uh, I look forward to your next book, and I look forward to talking to you again about that once it's published. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much once again for the podcast and, of course, for the last couple of years. Much, much appreciated. Much appreciated.